We have unified body believers. Even when there's conflict. We look at what the mission of the church ought to be like, who the leaders of the church are, and how Christ is ahead of the church. And as a, the leadership of this church prayed about where we would go from the time that Pastor Wayne left the church um, to this point, the first series that we did was on the sovereignty of God and Pastor Ralph because we all wanted to be reminded that God is in control. He's in control of our lives, of our destiny as a church, that will care for Pastor Wayne and Jan as they move on to the next season in ministry. God is in control. We're reminded of that in Psalm 39. We're reminded of what a church ought to look like. So we want to remember what God wants us to look like. And today I began a series in the book of Malachi. And Malachi is a significant book for us in the church in this season because it addresses all sorts of issues in our lives. Um, some of you might have heard Malachi referred to as an Italian prophet. If you pronounce him Malachi. But he was Jewish, I promise you that The book is kind of like a courtroom. It's like God is, has his people on trial. And they bring down evidence showing them how they are guilty of various sins. Now, I had a very good experience. Have you guys been there before? I got to like the first time. Alright? And I was really fascinated to sit in the courtroom and see how this court case transpired. And from the first day, it was pretty clear who was right and who was wrong. Uh, because the, the defense really uh, didn't have much to say. The prosecutors brought it and brought it and brought it. So much evidence that the birth of the Nets. And it's like God's doing it here in the book of Malachi. One thing after another, God lay out before them, look, you've done this, you've done that, you've done that. And no doubt we're being unanimous birth. In this book, God addresses the connection that his people have between their idolatry and their adultery. He addresses the connection or the concern that people ought to have for one another that they were like it. It addresses how these people manage God's money. It addresses the very question, is it really worth following God when the wicked people are going to prosper? And today what we're looking at is what chapter 1 addresses, and that's this very thing of religion. And that religion as we come to know it ultimately really is offensive to God. I want to propose that God despises religion as it's commonly known in our culture today. And as we open up the book of Malachi, we'll explore what this means. But as you see, I've titled this series Devoted, Divided, or On the Defensive because those are kind of your options on what you're going to do in response to God's message. Are you going to let God's word penetrate you and stir greater devotion to him? Will his word reveal a divided heart? Whether or not you really are kind of tinkering, whether or not you want to serve him or serve him not? Or as some of us might respond in a defensive manner, trying to justify who we are and why we do what we do and try to defend the fact that we're, we're really religious, we're not bad people, we do this and we do that on a defensive. And God has a message for each one of us 
And His desire is that we would grow in our devotion to Him. So as I look into Malachi chapter 1, let me pray first and commit this time to the Lord. God, we lean upon your grace right now. God, I want to hear from you. God, I want you to speak through me. Lord, we all know that the power is in your word. And we pray for receptive hearts, God. For your son's sake, amen. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 from Malachi, which says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And by the way, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Malachi? It's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you need to find it, go to the second to last book, and it's the one after that. About two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Verse 2 says, this is God speaking, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. What's going on here? From the start, God is laying out a foundation for everything else he will say. And the foundation is this. Israel, I love you. I have loved you since I chose you for myself. And the people of Israel, their response is, have you really loved us, God? So you have to understand, Malachi writes after Israel had gone into exile and come back into the land. They've gone through some very, really difficult years and many of them question whether or not God truly loved them. But God is showing them, look, I love you and even though I have to bring you through, into exile, I've brought you out. And he says, just look at Esau. Now if you remember, Jacob is the father of the Israelites. In fact, God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob's twin brother's name was Esau. And he would become the father of what's called the Edomites. So God is telling the Israelites, look at Esau, look at the Edomites, look at how I have judged them. And look in contrast how I have loved you. Verse 5, God says, Your own eyes shall see God at work among the Israelites. He says, And you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God is showing them, look, I am in control, I loved you, and it's evident in the way that I treat other nations. But the scene is going to turn pretty quickly here because God's going to use that as the basis for his accusations against them. Now, do you remember uh, after Jesus had raised from the dead, he went out to Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. And it's happened three times. And the last time, Peter said, Lord, you know all things. He was hurt. But, God, but Jesus said, feed my sheep. It's this idea that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And here, God says, I have loved you, but you really haven't loved me in return. And in verse 6, court is in session. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. A son honors his father and a servant his master. 
If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? God brings three different charges to his people in verses 6 and then 7 and then 8. And each of those, they have a response. Now the third section in verse 8, the response is a bit unique, but it's a response nonetheless. And as you see in verse 6, the first charge, the first confrontation God has with His people is that I am your Father, and I know from the Ten Commandments that you shall honor your father and mother, but God says, where is my honor, O Israel? If I am your Master, where is my fear? God is accusing them of not honoring Him as God and of not fearing Him as God. And then he says, thirdly, O priests who despise my name. The third thing is they despise his name. Now, I don't, I don't know if you noticed, when Adam read the scripture reading, you might have noticed the phrase, the Lord of hosts, that came up over and over again. The Lord of hosts comes up 25 times in the book of Malachi. 24 times, I'm sorry. It is Malachi's favorite way to refer to God. Now, it's intentional that Malachi calls him the Lord of hosts. If you have a New International Version Bible, it says the Lord Almighty. See, the idea of the Lord of hosts is that God is in control of all the heavenly armies and they are at his disposal at any moment. In 2 Kings, there's a situation where Elijah is in his house and an army is coming upon him and he's not afraid because God gave him eyes to see the heavenly hosts surrounding his home. Those are the armies of the Lord. The Lord is the Lord of hosts. He is great. He is almighty. He is the God who brought them out of Egypt by the plagues, who parted the Red Sea, who redeemed them. And this is what the name, the Lord of hosts, brings to mind. And God is saying, you despise my name. And their first response to the Lord is this. How have we despised your name? On the defensive. See, I don't believe that they were really wondering, God, how do we do this? I, I don't know. I mean, I thought we were doing everything right. Because God's going to make it very clear that they knew far, very well what they were doing. And this is a question that's kind of trying to be on the defensive. God, we're still doing stuff. But they say, how have we despised your name? And then God clarifies, well, in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. See, in the book of Leviticus, we have clear laws of what God wanted his people to do with reference to worshiping him. They had to bring an unblemished sacrifice, something that was pure and clean. And God says, you've polluted the altar with polluted food. 
And that was his charge. And of course, their response, again on the defensive, says, well, how have we polluted you? How have we done this? And it's interesting, if you see that, God says, you polluted my altar, and then they ask, how have we polluted you? And they had an understanding that what they did in their sacrifice reflected their understanding toward God. So God says, okay, I'm going to make this even clearer to you. With this third charge, or third complaint, in the end of verse 7, he says, You have polluted my altar by saying the Lord's table may be despised. Now if you notice, they polluted the altar, they, they put unclean sacrifices on the altar, and God says, You have said the altar may be despised. Their actions spoke for themselves. God says, I know when you come to worship, you brought polluted stuff, and that communicated to me and to everyone around that that's okay, that you can pollute the altar of God. And here he clarifies in verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? He tells them to give that to their governor. Now, the governor wouldn't even accept that. And what's their response? Look in verse 8. You won't find one. It's silence. God has laid forth an amount of evidence that not even a defensive heart can say, this is not us, God. They knew that they were bringing less than uh, perfect sacrifices to the altar. They knew what they were doing. They knew that Leviticus 22, verse 22 says, Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. They knew that the scripture said that. And then at the end of Leviticus chapter 22, God says why? He says, So you shall keep my commandments and do them, because I am the Lord. Their actions showed that they did not honor him, they did not fear him, they despised his name, and it's all evident in this poor offering that they gave to him. They had nothing to say. You know, sometimes in our lives, we get on the defensive. When we feel like we're being challenged in our uh, faithfulness to God, or we're being challenged in the way we live our lives, and we get defensive, we make excuses, we say this or we say that, but when God is confronting us on an issue, there's going to come a point where you have nothing else to say. Because if I'm not mistaken, God's right. And if God is right, whatever defense we put will not be. Notice what God tells them to do. Because they have no response, Malachi essentially says, well, I've got a couple for you. And in verse 9 he says, And now, entreat the favor of God. Repent. Ask God for his favor on your life, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hands. Will he show favor to any of you? Malachi is saying, look it, we all know that the offering in your hand is despicable. And if you're going to continue in this manner, you're in trouble. So ask God for his favor. Repent of your sin and turn away from this thing. That's God's call to a people who become blemished in their worship. The second response is God. God's uh, 
charge again to Malachi to tell the people. And this one is even more striking in verse 10. You almost hear God pleading in his heart. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept the offering from your hands. It's like God is saying, Close the doors to the church. We don't want you to come in and bring something that's disgusting to me. Close the doors to the temple. I don't even want the incense to be kindled, let alone a sacrifice of a sheep. God says, stop pretending like you're being faithful to me because you're going through the motion of sacrifice. Now, if you notice here, God's complaint against his people isn't that they're not worshiping him or that they're not going through some motion. They're going through the motions. But it's a heart issue. And this is where I see religion. Now, the Bible uses the word religion. So religion in itself is not bad. But as we understand religion, we tend to confuse it between God's grace and doing good works. And what religion tends to produce, uh, tends to produce at least three different things. Oftentimes it leads to self-righteousness. You tend to think that you're holy because you're going through the motion. If you recall a Pharisee who prayed and Jesus said this, told this story, where he said, God, I thank you so much that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I pray, I do this and I do that. That's self-righteousness that's coming out of religion. It misunderstands that God extends His grace to the humble. It misunderstands the fact that good works do not give us favor with God, but it's His mercy. A second thing that religion does is oftentimes gives an, an, an unnecessary feeling of guilt and an improper fear of God. See, there's a form of religion that says you have to do this for God to like you. And you keep trying and you keep trying and you keep trying. You come to church, you go to this place, you go to that Bible study, you do this over and over and over. Yet you always have this fear that God is angry with you. That's religion. Because it misunderstands God's grace. And it puts too much on works. We see that in so many religions in this world and we see that even amongst us Christians a third thing that religion can do is it empowers people to live reckless lives you say how does that happen well when people think that if I come to church on a Sunday morning that kind of you know purges me from everything that happened from Monday to Saturday or they say, you know, I'll say a prayer today so I don't feel so bad from what I did yesterday. So it empowers a recklessness, a way of living that dishonors God, yet religion covers it in the sense of, I'm taken care of, I've performed my duty. The priests were bringing sacrifices. They were going through the motions. They went to the temple, they slit the throat of the sheep. They burned the incense. But the heart that they had 
was marred by their lack of honor to God, their lack of fear of God, because they didn't find it necessary to give God the best. They thought it was sufficient to give Him second best, third best, and down the line. So easy for us to be so bogged down in our minds with religion. And what God wants from us is a heartfelt relationship with Him that honors and fears Him in such a way that we look forward to giving Him the best of what we have. God's word for Israel in verse 9 was to repent. And that is His word for us. Entreat God's favor. Ask Him to be gracious to you, to forgive us for practicing religion and thinking that that would pass for worship. The second thing, he tells them to stop pretending. He'd rather them close the doors. Don't even give it to me to begin with. And that might be his word for you here today. Just stop pretending. Don't be on the defensive. Quit trying to justify second best, but repent and give God the best. God can't compromise this. You know, some might be thinking, God is just so picky. I mean, they're doing it, God. I mean, really, the sheep is blind. So if it wasn't blind, you take it. I mean, what's the big deal? Just take the sheep. Just think of the parallels, though. If Jesus was blemished as the perfect lamb, could he cover our sin? If God were to lower his standard here, what would that look like? when he sent his son. If God is going to be lowering his standard for his people, what about for those on the outside looking in? And that's clearly what's stated in verse 11. Look there with me. It says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations. Malachi is a prophet, and he's prophesying that the nations, that Gentiles will one day come to God. And they, at that point, will offer the pure sacrifices that God wants. He doesn't need to lower his standard to appease his people, because ultimately, the Gentiles would do it. And that those who are obedient from his people will do it too. And to let you know, this includes you and I, I'm going to assume very few of us in here are Jewish by descent. We're Gentile. And when God says the nations will come and offer sacrifices, that you can be the fulfillment to that prophecy. Isn't that wonderful? Well, God doesn't linger there very long, though. Because he picks up on his accusations in verse 12. It says, But you profane it, this is referring to his altar, when you say that the Lord's table was polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. He's again restating and re-pointing uh, to them what their error is. And in verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is, God. God, it is so hard to find the best sheep, really. God, this is so much work. In fact, the, the, the New American Standard Bible says, my, how tiresome it is. NIV says, what a burden. God, do you really want us to do this? There's no gratitude in the heart. There's no fear of Him. 
in their statements. You see that in verse 13, it says, but you say. That phrase shows up nine times in the book of Malachi. And it's always their defensive ploy in response to God's confrontation. I pray that no but you says would be evident among us here this morning. Verse, uh, verse 13 again, it says, you bring what has been taken by violence. You see that? Or it might say in some of your Bibles, what has been stolen. This word carries the idea that something was torn apart while being taken. Exodus 22 says that no sheep or no offering that's been t- torn away, that has been teared to pieces in some way or another, can be brought to the Lord in his offering. In fact, that type of offering should be given to dogs, it says in Exodus 22. And here the people of God are giving it to the Lord of hosts. And that's why verse 14 is so harsh. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. If you wouldn't even offer this to your governor, much less me, a great king, God is this offended by their actions. He says they are cursed. He calls them a cheat. And if you follow in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, look at the language he uses for them here. He says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessing. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. But look at verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. I don't know any more offensive language than that. God's going to take the manure from the offering, put it on their faces. God, that's so offensive. God, why would you even say something like that? What? It's so disgusting. And the parallel is this. That is how he felt with their offering. It was offensive. It was disgusting. It was shameful. Now some of you might be observant and be thinking to yourself, all right, I see what you're saying, but is this sermon really for me? Because several times already, Malachi says to you, O priests, and last time I checked, I'm not a priest. You see that there in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And now, O priests, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, O priests who despise my name. And this is where the beauty of the Bible as one unified thing comes together. Because in 1 Peter, Peter tells the, the church, he says, You yourselves, in chapter 2, verse 5, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Peter also says that you are a royal priesthood. In Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, in view of God's mercies, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. As a child of God, we are priests. 
And Jesus made this possible when he died on the cross. The, te- the, the, the veil from the temple was torn in two. And now we have access to God's presence in prayer. We are priests. And now we have the privilege to offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God. So indeed, this message is for us. So what does acceptable worship look like? What, do, what does that look like for us here at Good News Bible Church? Well, the who of what we worship is, well, we, we worship God. <laughs> but that's key to right worship, of, of, uh, to right worship it altogether. How do we worship? We, we worship with repentance and sincerity, with truth. When do we worship? Always, not just Sundays. Religion tells you to come to church to worship, and that's when you do it. We worship always. Where do we worship? Anywhere. Not just church. Why do we worship? Because we honor God. Because we fear Him. Because we want to bring glory to Him. And I want to challenge us. How do we prepare ourselves to worship? Whether it be at home, whether it be here at church, how do we prepare ourselves to worship in private and in public? Because our worship in private will manifest itself in our worship in public. And it all begins with repentance. That's what Malachi told them to do in verse 9. Our heart needs to be right before God if we're going to worship Him in sincerity. So if you're holding on to something, don't expect to offer an acceptable sacrifice to God today. Confess it to Him. If you need to even bow in your seat at this moment, do that. Because he's not pleased in the motion. We worship God throughout the week by fellowshipping with him in his word. If you're not reading your Bible, how can you fellowship with God? The Bible spurs our hearts into into worship. You read something like this. And I say, God, you've chosen me to worship you. Thank you. When God tugs on your heart to just shout a praise to him during the, during the week. Do it. He did that to me yesterday. I opened our freezer and I couldn't put something in it. It was too full. And I, for a moment I just stopped and I said, man, God, thank you. We've got food in our freezer. Don't resist those tugs on your heart to worship him. Make a practice of listening to worship music. Do what you can to, to enjoy the Lord and the worship of Him. And when we come to gather in public worship on Sunday mornings, what does your Saturday look like? How do you, you prepare your heart on Saturday to come here Sunday and to join with one another in offering acceptable sacrifices to God? Do you have a Saturday fling and try to do Sunday sing? Or are you mindful that tomorrow I get to gather with my brothers and sisters. I know one thing Erica and I try to do, we didn't do it today though, so that's my confession. Now we try to, we try to get our clothes ready Sunday, uh, Saturday night. Simple little thing, but it prevents us from scouring through our drawers, that way we're not rushing Sunday morning. Although we end up rushing almost all the time still. But we try. <laughs> Settle your hearts when you come in on a Sunday morning. Take just a moment. Ask God to settle your heart and prepare you for worship. You know, as believers, our whole lives, we're going to be learning what it means to worship God. 
I mean, we're never going to master this thing. But God knows our hearts. And He knows if we're just going through emotion. And He knows if we're really trying and seeking to honor Him. My brothers and sisters, God's worthy of our worship. He's worthy to be honored. He's worthy to be feared. He's worthy of our devotion. And how will you respond to this word from Malachi? Are you one who has given in to religion? Maybe it's produced self-righteousness in you. Maybe you're just always in fear that God hasn't accepted you. Maybe you use religion as an empowerment for reckless living. Don't be on the defensive this morning. Let God twist your heart and purge it and cleanse you that way you might be devoted to Him. God is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the Great I Am. He is worthy. Would we make it our ambition this week to worship Him in everything we do? Would you bow with me in prayer? God, this is a hard word from Malachi. God, you laid down all the evidence and you people of Israel had no, nothing to say. And oh Lord, it's so burdensome when we see that in our own lives, how we become defensive, we try to justify our actions, how our hearts are really filthy and we don't want to deal with it. And God, we confess that to you this morning. God, help us be a people who grow in our worship of you, that we may offer acceptable sacrifices, that we could join the nations and offer something pure, that you might be pleased and delighted in us, God. Oh God, you are our great King. And we glorify you this morning. Amen. We're going to have some prayer counselors that come forward. If you want to be prayed for, whether it's something regarding this message today or if it's something that you come to worship with this morning, a burden, would you ask someone to pray for you as we continue on in our worship this morning?